electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, live in Beverly Hills at the Case Alternative Investment Summit. We're on the hunt for opportunities beyond stocks and bonds today. And we'll have some special guests coming up later this hour and on Closing Bell this afternoon, including an exclusive interview with billionaire investor Todd Boley. Very much looking forward to that. The Investment Committee, they're with me today as well. Rob Seachin of New Edge, he's here with me on site. Josh Brown, Shannon Sakosha, Joe Terranova joining as well. Well, you know the market story by now or higher across the board, Rob. I thought these guys uh, set it up perfectly. I think it really boils down to a simple question. Are we set up for a year-end rally or not? I think that's what our viewers want to know more than anything else. How would you answer that question? I think it's possible. It's certainly possible. It's a seasonally strong period. We're in an environment where there's a tug of war between high interest rates, uh, 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 geopolitical tensions, uh, uh, valuations that are high, and an economy that is strong, earnings are delivering, and a consumer that's remaining resilient. And so I certainly think that that's, uh, that's a possible outcome. Now, let's remember, if we were to rally back to those July highs, valuation becomes an issue again, especially if it's driven by the stocks that have uh, the magnificent sit in seven, and rates have, have stayed higher. You have those same tensions at that point. Mm. When we look over the last two years, Scott, markets haven't gone anywhere. When we look since June, markets have not gone anywhere. And yet what we're seeing is a lot of opportunity underneath the surface because of the narrowness of these stocks. So. I think the answer is yes. I think you have to be a lot more selective. Okay, so Shan, 11% of the S&P 500 reporting this week. Uh, Netflix and Tesla, those are obviously going to be critical. Yields are up a little bit um, today. I feel like the, the, the tug of war really exists between the bulls and the bears on the, on the yield front in some respects. Yes, we're up a little bit today, but there still is, at least according to the bulls, the idea of this dovish Fed pivot. You had Goolsby today from the Chicago Fed said, quote, undeniable that a slowdown in inflation is now the trend. The bear case, of course, they don't care about this alleged Fed pivot or not. They're like, well, yields are still going to remain high and the lag effects of tightening are yet to come. Which side do you fall on? Well, I think this short-term oscillation that we talked about last week, and and Scott, we're going to get plenty of ammo from the Fed this week. We've got a lot of people out speaking. We've got Powell here in New York on Thursday. Um, And so I think, you know, this bull bear tension is really about what are we talking about? Are we talking about the rest of this year? Um, And I agree with Rob. We certainly could be setting up for the potential for 
you know, a higher equity market from, you know, between now and the end of the year. Um, but the longer term lags of these rates, it, it continues to be the open question coming into 24. And how does that impact the consumer in particular? I think the other thing that you touched on is, you know, what's happening from an exogenous perspective on the rate market right now. We were worried about U.S. debt and we were seeing the yields were ticking up higher and higher and higher and really didn't, didn't seem like much of a floor or a ceiling, excuse me, over the last few weeks. Then we have what's obviously happened in the Middle East. You're seeing a little bit of a bid come back into the market. There could also be some additional positioning, Scott, coming into the end of the year in terms of people needing to bolster their fixed income exposure to uh, ahead mm -hmm. of December 31st. And so you could get a little bit of additional incremental Treasury demand. All of that, though, is inconsistent with our view of 2024, which is going to be a more challenging environment and more dispersion underneath the surface. Couldn't agree with Rob Moore on that particular point. There are going to be winners and losers next year in the equity market. And unlike this year, where we had a very small contingent that were leading the returns, we do expect there to be uh, more stocks that show sort of those idiosyncratic forces in a more challenging environment. Josh, I want to focus really on, on the next two and a half months before we even sort of turn our attention to, to 2024, because, you know, we, we've had a good year in the major averages. Under the surface, obviously, the performance of non-mega cap tech hasn't been nearly as great or carried through as, as much as those stocks have done. But how do you see it uh, between now and the end of the year? Two and a half months. Are we now set up for some kind of, you know, significant move higher? So I, I, th I, I think that we are, and I would tell you that, uh, and, I, and I, I don't mean to start the show off disagreeing with Rob, but I don't see valuations being the, the, the problem, even if we do get back to the old highs that, that he sees them as. The Russell 2000 has a, has a P.E. ratio of like 12 times forward earnings. The, the mid caps are like 13. The stocks are not expensive. The phenomenon of the of the Magnificent Seven is really what's making the market, like when we say the market, the market looks like valuation might be an issue solely because of the massive outperformance and uh, the, the proportion of the indices that these stocks take up. Um, they're up mm -hmm. huge and they're a huge component. If you if you just think about stocks as an asset class, they are not the valuation is not the thing that's going to stop us here. Um, I think the bigger concern is a continued rate, rate, uh, rate spike and obviously a commodity spike. Like those to me would be the two reasons why we're not set up for success. But uh, assuming we don't see anything aberrant on either of those fronts, valuation won't be the thing that stops this market from continuing to recover. I would point out that the, the best development that we're seeing today away from just the, the headline index gains is breadth. Last week, something very important happened. For the first time in 10 weeks, for the first time in 10 weeks, we finally saw a contraction in the new lows versus new highs. And that's for all stocks trading on the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ. So we've had 10 straight weeks of deteriorating breadth, and then last week it stopped. That is way more important than the forward P.E. ratio of the S&P 500, just in terms of the behavior of, of what companies are doing in the buying and selling. 92% um, of the S&P 500 is up today. 
That is the highest reading since April of this year. So it looks as though you're getting that breadth improvement for the first time in a long time. Every sector is green. Eight out of 11 sectors are up more than 1%. The only sectors that aren't are exactly what you'd expect. Utilities, healthcare, real estate, the usual suspects. You got a VIX down about 9% today, back down to 17. For, for us to be experiencing what we've been experiencing, geopolitically, interest rate-wise, et cetera, and only seeing a VIX of 17 is absolutely remarkable, and I think it speaks to strength beneath the surface. So uh, earnings are coming up. Uh, so far, so, so good. Uh, tech is going to be the most important. It's two weeks of tech and communication services that are going to decide this thing. Um, but if we get through mm -hmm. those and we're still at a low to mid 70% beat rate, I think that's the game. I think that's where, where we end up. We just showed the, the wall with all the, the green on it, Joe. Um, and it is a really yeah. uh, wide day uh, today of, of breath for the market, as, as Josh was just talking about. Tony Pascarello, he, head of Goldman's hedge fund uh, coverage, says in a new note over the weekend, path of least resistance higher from now until the end of the year. He's confident in the durability of the economy. Mm -hmm. He also likes the setup for tech stocks, uh, calls it compelling uh, going into earnings. And the flow of funds and technicals have improved materially. Uh, he says, sounds like a, you know, pretty much how you're playing it, Joe, right? You're expressing your more bullish yeah. view um, through tech, right? It's through that play you've made it yes. in the queues, and that's how you think that we are going to be able to progress higher over the next two and a half months. Yes, yeah, a very thoughtful, well-written uh, note by Tony, and I agree with all of it. Uh, it's very rare, Scott, that leadership in a year where you're seeing a positive performance overall for the S&P 500, it's rare that leadership would change this late in the year. It's not as if here we are, October 16th, suddenly technology is going to take a back seat and you're going to see some of the value areas lead the market. No. In fact, in a positive year, it's generally the leadership which will tend to close out the strongest. And that's obviously what I'm positioning for. That's what I'm seeing within the market. Let's remember, two of the more critical stocks in terms of the generative AI story in 2023, they're not going to be reporting in October. They're actually going to re report later in the earnings season. So NVIDIA will report in the days preceding Thanksgiving, and then Broadcom, which is trading towards a 52-week high, that will report in the first week of December. So there's potentially more positive news uh, to act as a catalyst on the other side of the earnings and the FOMC report. Last point, I could just tell you, the markets today, to Josh's point, it's a very, very strong cocktail of positive uh, dynamics. First of all, you have a 10-year and a 30-year yield, which is rising. Market is shaking that off. You're seeing very strong buying in the futures market for both the S&P and the NASDAQ. And crude oil is not trading with that heightened sense of urgency that it was trading on Friday with the concerns surrounding geopolitics over the weekend. So I like the entire dynamic of how we're set up here today. Uh, and I think it's indicative of how we're going to set up through the remainder of Q4. You want to take on what was mentioned before? Because, I mean, if you, if you talk about the, the valuation, Rob, of the market, you know, Josh makes a good point. The valuation of the S&P 493 is not the valuation of the S&P 7. 
the Magnificent Seven. Sure, if you and, look and at those, those, people, those drive the market. And they've yeah, had they drive the market, but it's hard to say a broad brush statement that valuations are too high when the overwhelming majority of stocks and let you know if you look at the equal weight S&P for example mm-hmm. what is the what, what valuation are we even talking about of the S&P 493 15 times Re- reasonable which is why we said there is opportunity outside the magnificent 7 but when you talk about what's going to drive markets it's going to be the capitalization of those names that is going to drive performance into the year end now what they do have going for them is window dressing If you take the playbook from the previous two years and you're coming into year end, you're buying the winners and tax loss harvesting the losers. And that typically has had a setup where technology got hit, it rallied very hard. Energy got hit the year before, it rallied very hard. So if you if you if you push that playbook to this year, you could see very much the same thing. Now, what that does set up is for opportunities selectively. And I just be mindful of the selectivity, because here's here's some of the issues out there. Small cap stocks, despite their valuation, are deeply impacted by the financing markets much more than their larger competitors. They're deeply more impacted by supply chain management and cost of labor. So you have to put all these things into your calculus. And what I would say is, is that not understood by the markets? No question that it's understood by the markets. I I, I don't understand your point. Well, which is kind of like why 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 does money keep going into the mega cap names? Why make it more difficult for yourself? Because they're delivering on earnings. Look at the earnings growth. But when you when you say you know (laughs) you have to be you know look look you know under the surface for for stocks that are going to do well, the prevailing thought in many corners is don't make it harder than it has to be. Look well, at the Magnificent Seven. I, I Just like it got right. you from the beginning of the year to now, it can take you from here to there but, but again. Scotty, I'm going to take you back to a couple years ago where we were the, saying the same things, and the air got let out of the tires in the next year because they reached valuation levels and real rates were climbing, which is what the Fed wants. And eventually, that comes home to roost well, in short periods of time. That's why, Shannon, Jonathan Krinsky today says it's just a matter of time. His new note. Just a matter of time until winners succumb. And he's talking about tech. And he talks about to what the rest of the market has been saying. People haven't been listening. But it's going to catch up to tech eventually. You buy that or not? Well, I mean, I, I think he's he's really looking at it from a mean reversion perspective and the fact that we do have all of these potential headwinds from an economic perspective coming into next year. And, and why wouldn't you see that mean reversion, particularly because, you know, I think Joe or Josh, one of one of you guys made a great point about the sectors that are underperforming today. Um, and they're the defensive sector, Scott. So there needs to eventually be capital if we do see continued economic contraction and more caution um, in the first, first half of next year, that money has to rotate from somewhere. And so I think about it more from a rotation standpoint than there's um, fundamental flaws in terms of you and I have argued about this several times on the show over the last couple of months. Free cash flow, strong balance sheets, um, continuing top line growth, ability to engineer that. Those are what mega cap tech has. And so really, if you're talking about them succumbing, it's about a it's about a rotation that would need to be happening to fund investments in more defensive parts of the market. And I think it's more about the timing of that more than anything else. And I think that's the question that you're asking on the show today. 
yeah, but I'm just not sure that, you know, that that's going to happen. Joe, I, I'm just not sure well, that there's going to be selling of, of those stocks to fund the buying in, in, in other areas. Now, l- let me bring up, too, you know, Joe, we have an uptake. Everybody's been talking about the strength and the, the broad strength that we have today. Let me see Apple, uh, if I could, please, intraday, because at least right before the program, that stock was red, which is unique in and of yeah. itself in the kind of day. So there it is. It, it's still red. Why? Because so Jeffries today talks about the iPhone 15 being outsold by Huawei in China. There's another report that suggested sales are down four and a half percent compared to the iPhone 14. And it's one of the worst debuts in China for the iPhone since around 2018. How much does this matter? I think it matters. I think it's idiosyncratic, Um, obviously specific to Apple. Listen, the news came out earlier this morning and the market went down initially off the news. The Nasdaq futures came right back once again. Um, So it's specific to Apple. And I think there's enough broad based strength in the mega caps that we'll see resiliency to the degree in which if Apple is going to be the weak link, I don't think that's going to be the catalyst that reverses this overall positive trend. Yeah. Rob, look, you own Apple. You have been trimming it. You said today that a call on Apple is a call on the markets and we're neutral. Well, you didn't sound that neutral when I asked you off the top of the show if you think we're set up for a run into the end of the year. But square those thoughts for me. Yeah, I think we're set up for a modest run. The setup is for a modest run, maybe back to the July highs. We are not in the camp that we're going to see 4,700 on the S&P. We are neutral, Apple, recognizing that we are long-term owners of the stock, and we have a valuation discipline, which may or may not be valued by others on this show, but when the stock gets expensive, we trim it down. And if you look at the trading ranges, being a long-term owner, you can trade these bookends to create opportunities to buy other types of names. And so Apple's a great business, but You're in an environment where they're expensive, they're having some deceleration in their businesses, and being overweight probably doesn't make sense. But because of the large cash balances, they have an incredible ability to manage their shares outstanding and do things that other companies don't. And we're not selling it for our long-term investors, so we're neutral. Yeah. Josh, real quick, before I take a a break, your thought on Apple, the significance of now, again, big up day, and yet this stock is red, and there's you know, some significant concerns about the strength of the 15. There's no question that geopolitical tensions between the United States and China are an issue for Apple. There's no question that Apple has an uphill battle right now. I would just suggest, though, this idea that things necessarily have to get significantly worse there is is simply not true and that's why the stock's only off one percent today uh it's important to point out apple is foxconn's most important customer foxconn would not exist without apple in its present form foxconn employs 1.2 million people in china to work on things like iphones they are a top 10 employer in the country of china 
there is a very high degree of interdependence between these various entities, and I think the market is smart and it understands that. If you woke up this morning, opened the Wall Street Journal and said, oh, Apple's struggling in China, you are really not paying attention. And, and, and I, would, I would hesitate to think that there's some sort of market impact from you coming to that insight uh, today uh, in October of 2023. So if that's the big drag on Apple itself today, okay, that's fine, so be it. This is still one of the best run companies in the world. Obviously, it's a premium valuation. I would argue they have earned that pre uh, premium valuation. And, uh, you know, this is a stock that we need to have hold up into year end if we're going to get that rally. Well, of course, but, but let's, let's not forget as well, and re real quick too, it's not insignificant, the business in China. It's 20% of Apple's revenues come from China. If, the, if Huawei has gained back a significant part of, of market share and the company has already, Apple, um, exhibited slower revenue growth and the iPhone drives the whole boat, which it really does, um, it's certainly something to keep an eye on. That, that's the only point that I would make. Up next, we are hunting for opportunities today beyond stocks and bonds. Case founder and CEO Matt Brown joins us live from the Alternative Investment Summit right here at the Beverly Hilton, Beverly Hills. And later, ARK Invest, Kathy Wood, she joins Halftime to talk tech and AI. The first Bitcoin ETF, don't go anywhere. We have a big show still ahead, and we are back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. We got a good day going on in the market. As you see, Dow's good for better than 300. We are back on the half live from the Case Alternative Investment Summit right here in Beverly Hills. Alternative investments beyond stocks and bonds continue to see rapid growth as investors look to maximize returns in a higher rate environment. Joining us now, Case Chairman and CEO Matt Brown. He is the host of this conference. Thanks for having us here. It's fun to be here. Scott, great to be here. You have an interesting product in that you directly connect financial advisors and asset managers, correct? That's correct. How does yeah. this work? And they can actually transact directly. So Case actually is a technology platform. And what we've done is we've actually connected the broad financial advisor community, primarily in the independent wealth community, with a host of alternative asset managers, such as private equity, real estate, private credit, and hedge fund managers, really giving each community access to each other such an interesting environment that we're in like uh, you know it, it's obviously a new environment relative to 
where return expectations are in, in public markets. Uh, interest rates are high, and some suggest they're going to be higher for longer. So what does that mean for alternative allocations? What sort of growth are you seeing as a result of just this new environment that we find ourselves in? We really are seeing a new era of access right now. You know, average allocations uh, of financial advisors to alternative investments have historically been quite low, and low single digits. Institutions, just to compare, are close to 40 or 50 percent alternative. Uh, but what we're seeing now over the next decade is really a huge shift in allocation, really the rise of what we call the three-dimensional portfolio. No longer that 60-40 stocks and bonds, but more of a balanced 50-30-20, 20, 20 being alts. And the big news there is that this is one of the biggest reallocations in finance. Upwards of $10 trillion will be reallocated in from wealth management into alternative investments. So we're talking, uh, we're talking about hedge funds, we're talking about private credit, we're talking about private equity. I'm curious as to someone who's running a wealth management firm trying to construct portfolios for people, how you're thinking about the future of, of what the portfolio looks like. I mean, the way Matt describes it, 60-40, no more. And it can't be. And we've been in that camp for a long time, Scott. I mean, we talk on our show every day about liquid markets, but there's there's structural advantages in private markets. The number one advantage that every advisor should be thinking about is diversification. But when you think about forward returns and achieving actuarial targets, which is what some of these institutional investors do all the time. They're thinking about, okay, I have a 5% actuarial target. How do I achieve that in a world where returns may be coming down for traditional stocks and bonds, which are hyper-economically sensitive? And the level of control that can be exerted in the private markets is substantial, both from an operating leverage standpoint, a financial leverage standpoint, but then opportunities that are created where forward returns move higher. When public markets get scared, private markets step in to take advantage. European debt crisis, funds are created to take advantage and step in and fill that void. SVB, banking crisis, private credit emerges as another solution. And so, yes, the cost of executing in that space has gone enormously higher because the you know interest rates going up, and so returns come down. But there's so many other levers to pull mm -hmm. as long-term investment owners versus traders. You, you think that you know RIAs, registered investment advisors, have an easier time selling alternatives to their to their customers? The you know the the typical mom and pop investor. Well. First of all, we're a B2B platform, so our client is a financial advisor, and so they're not selling, they're advising. They're building portfolios. In terms of selling, I mean like convincing, convincing. or convincing um, well, the average investor that alternatives are a place that you really want to be invested in. Yeah, I think that right now um, the story is out that the 60-40 is not working, and the track record of private equity, private credit, hedge fund strategies that are delivering absolute return you know, that, that's pretty well, pretty well proven. Advisors right now don't lack demand for alts. They lack access and they lack education. And that's really where Case as a platform steps in as a technology to make sure that we're arming the financial advisor, really being their co-pilot, if you will, to make sure that they're allowing for 
great products like alternatives to get into the client portfolios to improve portfolio performance. So, so it's interesting. I have a question for you. You know, you look at the RIA community, many of them are boutique-y. Access is an important part of this, and you know that there's huge selection risk in the in the alts space. And so a company like yours is really stepping in to help those advisors not just construct, but to get, get access. What has the adoption been like in that population towards these assets as they become more and more important? Rob, you're, a, you're a, a great user of the platform. You know the adoption rates per case have been really just growing exponentially. Uh, the advisor community has, again, as I mentioned, has had the demand, but it's just lacked the tools to be able to really source evaluate, learn about the strategies, implement, and then execute efficiently. You know, manual processes that usually have burdened the world of alternatives have now been able to go away with platforms like Case, making it very easy for them to access and then, of course, reallocate. So we're seeing huge adoption rates. We measure that. We also measure deepening wallet share, uh, the ability for an advisor to extend their relationship with their existing client. Many advisors believe if that, you know, their clients aren't talking about alts just because they're not interested. We found that 67% of the clients of advisors that are not using alts right now are actually using them, but just away from the primary advisor. So we're really arming them to deepen wallet share and really have a more holistic approach. There's an amazing statistic on this. If you look at institutional allocations, both rate of return and standard deviation, they're roughly 2% higher returns, 2% lower standard deviations than the same allocations that don't use alternatives. Well, it's exciting for us to be able to talk about you know, something beyond uh, stocks and bonds uh, for a change. We just, we just don't do it that often, but I know that our viewers are, are always, Matt, looking for ways to make money in what is a changing and, and evolving environment. Thank you for having us. Uh, best of luck on an exciting conference. Thanks, Scott. Matt Brown, uh, again, he's the chairman and CEO of case here in Beverly Hills. The headlines now with Courtney Reagan. Hey, Court. Hi, Scott. A U.S. attorney is opening a federal hate crimes investigation in Illinois after a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy was killed and his mother was injured. A spokesperson for the attorney's office said the suspect allegedly stabbed the child and his mother because they were Muslim and because of the ongoing war in Israel. The World Health Organization said there are only about 24 hours for aid to enter Gaza before the region runs out of water, electricity and fuel. Aid for Gaza is currently stuck at the Rafah border crossing with Egypt. The WHO regional director said that if this time runs out, a quote, real catastrophe sets in. And the Biden administration reached a deal with the 4,000 migrants who were separated from their families at the U.S.-Mexico border under the Trump administration. The migrants will be allowed to live and work in the U.S. for three years while they apply for asylum. They will receive housing, mental health, and legal assistance. The federal government is also prohibited from separating any migrant families at the border for eight years, expect, except under special circumstances. Scott, back to you in Beverly Hills. All right, Court. I appreciate it. That's Courtney Reagan. Up next, ARK Invest CEO Kathy Wood. We'll get her take on today's crypto rally, the tech trade, where she is finding the next big opportunity. We're back on the half, Beverly Hills, right after this. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, 
drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. We're back on the Halftime Report today. Bitcoin is rallying as we move one step closer to the first ever Bitcoin ETF. Let's get to Bob Pisani now with today's ETF Edge and a special guest, Bob. On a spot Bitcoin ETF, it making that long-awaited ETF a lot more likely. We're very close right now. Joining us now, someone's very much got a dog in that fight, ARK Invest CEO Kathy Wood. Kathy, you're one of nine applicants for a spot Bitcoin ETF. It looks like the SEC is going to be forced to approve a spot Bitcoin ETF. What, if any, communications have you had with the SEC about your application? Where are we in this whole thing? Well, uh, it was uh, publicized and disclosed, uh, I think it was last week, that um, we had responded to uh, the SEC's request for information around our, our uh, Bitcoin filing, uh, and we responded. And that's basically all we can say. Uh, I think many people think the fact that the Fed, uh, I mean the Fed, the SEC um, chose to ask questions is a change in behavior. Uh, and therefore, I do think hopes are rising that a or a number of Bitcoin ETFs will be approved. Yeah, the, the, my understanding is the court now is going to issue a mandate about how to enforce their decision here to the SEC, and their SEC is going to basically follow that mandate. Everybody is assuming at this point that they'll probably approve most of the Bitcoin ETFs by the end of the year. Is that, that's a reasonable assumption at this point. They lost the court case. They chose not to appeal it at this point. Right. Uh, and I do believe uh, uh, maybe the reason they're saying by the end of the year, early next year, I know our final deadline on this filing is January 10th. And so uh, and I think we're first in line. But as you say, uh, a, a number of uh, a number of BTA, uh, Bitcoin ETFs uh, could be approved at the same time. Now, your uh, flagship ARK Innovation Fund's up 20 percent this year. You're outperforming the S&P. But you've had significant outflows this year. Can, can you talk about that? You, you know, you're outperforming and yet you're having outflows. Well, tell us a little yeah. bit about what impact, for example, higher rates are having on your holdings this year. That seems to be a major issue. Well, I, I think there are a couple of things going on. Um, if you'll remember, in late 20 and early 21, the flows were enormous into our funds. And, uh, you know, I was, I was uncomfortable at the time. Uh, uh, because we thought there was a lot of momentum uh, chasing going on. And, and we said at that time, keep some powder dry. Little did we know how, how, how big the correction would be. Uh, this is sort of the flip side of that. Uh, we're feeling much more comfortable right now. Uh, but we did have, uh, through July, a very significant uh, rally. 
I do think there's been some profit taking there. Uh, and I do think, as you say, interest rates, rising rates have concerned a lot of people. There's been a shift into cash. And we've seen very recently a shift into uh, into bonds. Uh, and interestingly, the flows into bonds would suggest that we should not be far behind because if bonds are going to rally, and we think they will at some point here, as inflation continues to come down, as the economy continues to go through rolling recessions of sorts, uh, we think that the, uh, the backdrop will be right for a resurgence in growth stocks generally, uh, and in particular, long-duration innovation growth assets like ours. My colleague, Scott, Scott's got a question here. Scott? All right. Hi, Kathy. Great to have you back Hi, on the Scott. Halftime Report. So given what you just Thank said, you. do you not believe in higher for longer? Uh, I don't, and uh, we don't, I should say. Um, if, we, if, we, if we're paying attention to company earnings and some of these uh, uh, our companies uh, were exposed to, others not, um, you'll see at both the high end and the low end of the consumer uh, spectrum in terms of price points. Uh, you've got Domino's saying, hey, it's really weak out there. We've got to do more promotional activity. And you've got LVMH, same thing. Both of those happened last week. We're paying attention to company reports, and I understand the economic statistics are, are volatile and showing uh, strength and then weakness. Uh, we're paying atten attention to our companies, and it does seem like the consumer is starting to give way here. Yeah, interesting. Let me ask you about a specific stock that you sold, and that's NVIDIA. Do you regret <laughs> selling it? You called it, quote, really expensive. I will note that the forward P.E. of NVIDIA is literally half of Tesla's forward P.E. So how can NVIDIA be really expensive with Tesla not being so? And do you regret selling it? Um, we, we own it in our specialized funds. We've taken it down everywhere. And um, this is portfolio management. Uh, we see NVIDIA uh, you might say it is less expensive than Tesla. We think the upside surprises on Tesla during the next five years, remember we have a five-year investment time horizon, are going to be substantially more than NVIDIA's, uh, mostly because most analysts do not believe that autonomous uh, as a taxi platform for, for Tesla is going to be a part of the story. We disagree. And with that, we see incredible revenue and margin expansion. NVIDIA's margins are already quite high, having entered the 70s, the gross margins. Uh, Tesla's are in the 20s, and we think they will scale into the 60s and 70s as autonomous takes off. Uh, so uh, Tesla, we believe, is the biggest AI project, or autonomous uh, driving is the biggest AI project in the world. NVIDIA has been critical to providing the infrastructure to enable this and so many other things to happen. All, all uh, praises to NVIDIA. Uh, we think that a lot of people understand how important NVIDIA is in this ecosystem, and they do not understand how, uh, how much each dollar of hardware spent is going to pull uh, software through. We think it's on the order of uh, 20 times uh, 
so we think NVIDIA is going to be a good stock. We think the stocks in our portfolio, and we've written a paper on, uh, on uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, it's titled Investing in Artificial Intelligence, Where Will Equity Value Surface? Uh, you can read that on uh, arc-funds.com and see how we're a really good diversification into this AI world. Many think that the winners are going to be uh, the, the megatech uh, companies. Uh, who have uh, had such strong performance over the years. We are not sure. We are not sure. Uh, uh, Chat GPT could be the best thing that ever happened to Google and that it lit a fire under Google to get its own AI um, uh, into the market uh, more profoundly. Or it could be a, the worst thing in that uh, it's going to lose its advertising franchise if we're all just on uh, Chat GPT looking for our answers. All right, Kathy, thank you very much. We've got to have much more with Kathy Wood coming up on ETF Edge at 1.10 p.m. Eastern Time. Now, Kathy's going to talk more about Bitcoin and where we're at on that. She's going to talk about her concentrated tech investment picks, including more on AI and her new foray into European investor. We're going to hear all about her new purchases of a big European company. She'll be joined by Tom Leiden, vice chairman of Vetify. That's ETFedge.cnbc.com. Scott, back to you. All right, Bob, appreciate that very much and look forward to it. Coming up, the pulse of the big money, how one top-ranked wealth advisor is navigating this market. The Colony Group's Michael Nathanson joins us live right here in Beverly Hills. We're back in just a couple minutes. Strong day on the street. We're back on the half live today in Beverly Hills from the Case Alternative Investment Summit. The prospect of higher rates for longer means wealth managers are rethinking how to construct winning portfolios in that environment. Michael Nathanson is chairman and CEO of the Colony Group. He's also a Barron's Hall of Fame advisor, having been on their top advisor list 10 times. Welcome. It's good to see you. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. So a conversation we had with Matt Brown a little while ago was sort of the future of what was the 60-40 portfolio. Is, is it dead? Is it evolving? How would you describe it? Um, I, I, would, I would be hesitant to say that it's dead. It's certainly evolving, however. And the way we're thinking about portfolio construction these days is that fixed income is back. As you just said, rates are higher. Fixed income is back. Um, I think it'll be here for some time. Um, we think that it has an important place in portfolios now. Um, if anything, people should be, uh, be locking in uh, the, the great rates we're seeing. We just saw that the 10-year uh, uh, Treasury at 4.7% this morning. And, um, and there is reinvestment risk that people need to take into account and, and, um, and mitigate. Um, but we're also seeing... Um, increasing from a portfolio construction, increasingly um, the need to recognize what's happening in the markets. Um, I heard you speaking earlier today about the Magnificent Seven, how they've dominated the S&P 500. And, and we're very mindful of that, that much of the performance, really all the performance for this year has been in the S&P 500, thinking about ways to diversify around that. In terms of what you were speaking with, Matt, about, I would just also say that um, with the help of Case, we have been able to, uh, to, to substantially build up our exposure to private equity, private debt, private credit. Um, on the, uh, the private equity side, 
Uh, we've now launched our own fund with the help of Case, mm -hmm. about to do that with private credit. And increasingly, what we're realizing is that uh, we don't need only to rely on the public markets for equity exposure. In fact, while we're at an alternative summit, I would just say that the way we're seeing uh, private equity is just a form of equity. It's an equity allocation. Same thing with private credit. And I think that we'll see more of that because there's so much dry powder in the area of private equity. And also because companies they, these days are just not as reliant on capital. They're not as capital intensive, largely because of the advent of technology. Well, what, what percentage makes sense for, look, the, the viewer who watches us every day, we talk about stocks 95% per, percent of the time. You know, people have grown up with 60-40. Um, what percentage makes sense of alts to, to have in your portfolio? And will that percentage only increase as we move forward into what may in fact be a lower return environment? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll give you a range. Um, I think that you, you should be looking at anywhere from, say, 10 to 30 percent. Um, I'll say this as well as, again, it's a question of what is an alt. So the way we think about alts are we think about private equity, private credit. Now, again, I would say that while we call them alts generally, private, private equity is really equity. Private credit is really credit. So it depends how you define, define these things. And then in terms of alternatives, you have your private strategies, alternative strategies, and then you have real assets. In terms of, of, uh, of alternative strategies, what I would say is in this age of higher rates, there's frankly less need for them because you can, they're generally designed to offer the kinds of, of stability and returns, yield, income, that fixed income can. So I think we're seeing oh, less emphasis on that. Yeah. Josh Brown, uh, who's on our program today, has a question for you. Josh? Hey, Michael, isn't there some element of uh, driving in the, in the, you know, looking in the rearview mirror, a lot of the uh, diverse, quote unquote, diversification benefit of private equity versus public equity or private credit versus public bonds really just comes from the fact that you don't have daily volatility, you don't have price quotes. So you have people that go a 90 day period of time thinking that they haven't really experienced the same volatility as we're getting in the public markets, but then they find out later that there was a lot of correlation after all. Could you speak to that for a moment? Josh, what a great question. I really appreciate that question because it also sheds light on the importance of educating clients about what you just described, which is that when you're investing in private equity, it often looks a lot less volatile than it actually is. And, and you're absolutely right that people need to be educated that, um, that you know, despite the fact that you know, you're seeing only infrequent reporting and marking to market, um, it is true that there is substantial volatility and we do need to be mindful of that. I'm just generally speaking to the fact that uh, private equity is becoming more and more mainstream. Um, organizations like Case make that a lot easier. Indeed, we're finding that um, that, um, that you know, there are firms that just want to work with, with the, the independent advisor, the registered investment advisor, because we increasingly have the, the depth of knowledge, the, the, the size, the scale. 
um, and, and the ability to bring clients in an efficient manner into these structures. Yeah. I appreciate the time. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. That's Michael Nathanson joining us here in Beverly Hills. Up next, our chart of the day. It's a retail stock that's rallying on news, getting added to the S&P 500. Joe owns it. We'll trade it, and we'll do it next. Welcome back. Let's get to our chart of the day. It's Lulu. It's right there, Joe, up near 10%. It's going in the S&P. You own it in the T. It sure belongs in the S&P, certainly in the way that it's embedded itself in society. And when we look at the retail space, this is the one retailer that is delivering consistent revenue growth. I also think the viewers need to think about Lululemon in a nuanced way, and that's that they are uh, benefiting from the GLP-1 weight loss drugs. We've got a society that's going to evolve into the need for a different lifestyle, different apparel, and Lululemon will benefit in that regard. So, Shan, how do you look at discretionary? Do, do you break it up into what's perceived to be higher end versus everything else, or, or, or how would you describe it? No, absolutely. I, I, I agree with Joe on this, that, you know, is perceived to be higher end. What we're not seeing, Scott, and it, what's unusual about this particular cycle is we're all coming on here talking about the potential for the consumer to slow. And yet higher end retailers, Lulu as being a great example of one, are not experiencing the pressure you normally would expect in this part of the cycle because we're not seeing higher income households trade down yet. And so I think, again, you look at the pressure on Dollar General, you even look at what we talked about with Target in the middle of the store. Lulu is not experiencing that pressure because higher income consumers are just in a better place. Yeah. All right. Quick break. Come back. Final trades on the other side. All right, we got a big one on Closing Bell today, live here in Beverly Hills. That man right there, Todd Boley. It's an exclusive interview. The Eldridge co-founder, CEO, will talk about his big bets in clean energy and tech and media and sports and a whole lot more. And we'll do it right here. I hope you'll join me in a couple hours from this conference. Let's do final trades. Shannon Sakoshi, you go first. Uh, EWJ, the Japan ETF, uh, we think that the yen is going to remain suppressed and valuations are not nearly as demanding as they are here, perhaps in parts of the U.S. market. All right. Josh Brown. Uh, Uber stock looks like it's ready to make its next move. I still like the company into year end. No, nice winner today uh, is Uber. Joe T. Interactive brokers, take a look at the chart. It's pulled back nicely towards the 200-day moving average. This gives you a point of reference for a stop. All right. And finally, Rob Seachin here with me in Beverly Hills. I saw the stock on the list, the mothership. The mothership, Comcast. Uh, solid trends in the core business. Trades at 11 times, 30% discount to its peers. I will see all of you on Closing Bell. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. 
Picture this. You're on a John Deere compact tractor, enjoying the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.